From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. This is Alyssa Carroll, and I am your host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous vile and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Richard Ramirez. Richard Ramirez was born on February 28, 1960, making him a Pisces in El Paso, Texas. And as we always do, let's see what was going on around that part of the country at that time. So Texas in the 1950s was harsh and they experienced a significant drought from 1949 to 1957. The western part of Texas is already a pretty dry area, but during this time, they got 30 to 50% less water than usual. Temperatures were also much higher than average. Some ranchers tried to save their livestock herds by migrating them northward into Oklahoma and Kansas, but by 1954, the drought had spread to a 10-state radius mostly the Midwest and the South. Due to this, the number of farms and ranches dropped by over 100,000 and the rural population declined more than a third. Beef prices dropped, but feed prices increased. Some towns had to have water brought in from other areas because they were completely dry. The dust storms at that time rivaled the Dust Bowl dust storms. But when the rains finally returned, they brought back with them heavy, heavy storms and a number of tornadoes, which caused massive destruction and flooding. Also during the 1950s, the U.S. government was conducting nuclear bomb testing in nearby New Mexico. The fallout was carried and fell like snow in El Paso. The land and water became contaminated. Then the cows grazed off of that land and they drank the water and then the humans in return consumed the meat and the milk from the cows as well as drinking the water. To this day, some people are still trying to get the government to accept responsibility and to help those residents who have suffered because of the testing. The population of El Paso, Texas in 1960 was just over 276,000 people. Also around this time, El Paso was forced to agree with allowing a part of its city to become a part of Mexico as the Rio Grande had changed its course. This river is the international boundary between the United States and Mexico. 
Now, during this time, El Paso's economy was actually doing pretty well, but it was due to the terrible wages and then people crossing over the international border and the transportation network that supported both. Now, you probably already know, but for those of you who don't, the cities of El Paso and Juarez are basically two halves of the same city on either side of the border. Textile mills and clothing factories and other industries were profitable on both sides of the border, but there was conflict on both sides to improve working conditions. But not all was doom and gloom. John F. Kennedy visited El Paso twice during his 1960 campaign. And the average cost of a house in El Paso was about $12,000, and the average annual income was roughly a little over $5,000 a year. A new car was around $2,600, of course you know that, that varied. And a gallon of gas was just 25 cents. So this is the world that Richard Ramirez was born into. His parents were Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. Julian was a Mexican immigrant who was the oldest of his siblings born in Mexico into abject poverty. His mother died when he was 12 years old, leaving Julian to finish raising his siblings and to try to shield them from their own abusive father. Because of this, he had to force himself to be a very serious young man who grew to rarely ever smile, though he was considered a very handsome young man. According to the book, The Night Stalker, Life of Serial Killer Richard Ramirez, Julian was abusive toward his own children just as his father had been toward him and his siblings. He physically beat his children and Mercedes was not always spared as well. He had been a former policeman, but then began working for the Santa Fe Railway. But he did work hard to support his family and went to church on Sundays without fail. They were devoutly Catholic. He was devout, stoic, and stern. Mercedes was a Mexican-American citizen born in Colorado. Her family had moved to Mexico during World War II in order to keep her brothers from being drafted. Julian and Mercedes met when they were both just 14 years old while her family were visiting in Juarez. She and Julian married in 1948 when they were both 19. Not too long after, they moved to El Paso, Texas. So Richard was the youngest of five children. All of the Ramirez children suffered some sort of or level of malady that they believe is related to the nuclear fallout that happened in that area. Richard's older brothers were hit particularly hard. The couple's first son, Reuben, was born sickly and weak, growing into a rather apathetic child. Their second son, Joseph, appeared healthy at birth, but was soon diagnosed with a bone disease that left the infant in constant pain. Julian and Mercedes worked every spare hour they could to make the extra money it took to pay for the constant medical bills. And when they weren't working or sleeping, they were praying for their children to be well. Now, the couple were forced to go back to Juarez for a short amount of time by immigration, but Mercedes 
being an American-born citizen, was able to get the necessary paperwork together so that they could go back to El Paso. But while they were in Juarez, their son Robert was born, who seemed healthy at the time, but it would later be obvious that he had a severe learning disability and had a very difficult time in school. Once they were back in El Paso, Julian worked for the railroad and Mercedes got a job at a boot factory where it is reported that she worked with highly toxic chemicals. Back then, it just wasn't well known and therefore her exposure was quite intense. The couple soon had their fourth child and only daughter, Ruth. For a time, the family was content and happy or as happy as they could be considering their circumstances. Julian was able to get his own sister and her son, Miguel, up to America, and the family felt complete. Mercedes's fifth and final pregnancy, four years after Ruth was born, was difficult to say the least. But she still worked in the boot factory, still being exposed to the chemicals, and during the pregnancy she felt very unwell and being pregnant was zapping all of the energy that she had. This baby had been unexpected. But after his birth, his mother said that he was a good baby. Ricardo, as his given name at birth, slept well and was not fussy, and little Ruth was particularly attentive to him. Julian and Mercedes had to work an incredible amount of hours to support their family, which left the children home alone quite a bit. Richard's older brothers began hanging out with, you know, the bad kids. Reuben skipped school and started sniffing glue. When Richard was two years old, he tried to climb a dresser in order to reach for a radio that was on top of it. While climbing, the dresser tipped over and fell on top of him, causing him to be knocked unconscious for 15 minutes, as well as an injury to his forehead that required 30 stitches. This happened while a babysitter was supposed to be watching him, so of course the babysitter was immediately fired. A second serious head injury occurred when he was just five years old. He was knocked unconscious by a swing on the playground and the wound required stitches yet again. Following this injury, he would frequently experience epileptic seizures. Not long after, Reuben was arrested with his cousin Miguel, Julian's nephew, for stealing a car. Julian severely beat Reuben for his transgression, which was absolutely no deterrent for Reuben, who went on to get arrested again for breaking into houses. Julian beat Reuben again, and six-year-old Richard could hear every blow. Also, Robert and Joseph, after watching Reuben, began sniffing glue as well. It was sort of an effective pain reliever for Joseph, whose bone disease was debilitating, though he did eventually stop. Robert did not and he and Reuben teamed up, got in trouble with the law, then had to face the wrath of Julian and the beatings once they were back home. In fifth grade, Richard had one of his epileptic seizures. The first epileptic seizure that he ever had terrified his mother horribly, and she rushed to pick him up from school where it happened, but Richard assured her that he was fine. 
So once they got home, he said he wanted to play again. He didn't want to lay down and rest as his mother had instructed him to. He went back to school the following day and had another seizure. His mother took him immediately to the hospital where he was diagnosed with grand mal seizures. Now the doctor assured his mother that he would someday just miraculously grow out of them and he did not prescribe Richard any medication. Richard's sister, Ruth, began noticing that Richard would stare off into space, unfocused and unable to speak or move, for upwards of 15 minutes. Now, we now know that he was experiencing petite mal seizures. Ultimately, his epilepsy was left untreated. So, his brothers, Robert and Reuben, were placed in the learning disability class, led by Frank McMahon. Now, guys, listen to this. Kind of graphic. Mr. McMahon came across as a loving and concerned teacher who really wanted to make a difference in his students' lives. He was invested in his students. In fact, he would make visits to his students' homes to work with them outside of school. What the parents of his students didn't know was he was an obsessive pedophile. The exact number of child victims Mr. McMahon had is not known as not all of them have come forward with their stories, but we do know that there were many. And Mr. McMahon had a particular interest in Reuben and Robert. He would show up to the Ramirez home while Julian and Mercedes were working and molest the boys. Robert later said, quote, he would come over to our house in the afternoon, do things, and take us back to his place, like a couple of times a week for a while. My mother and father knew, but we told them we were doing work for him at his house and that he was helping us with schoolwork, unquote. Robert said that instead, Frank was performing oral sex on the boys. When Robert was asked if Mr. McMahon had done this to Richard, who would have been around seven or eight years old at the time, he said, quote, I don't know. Richie used to be there a lot, you know, but I never saw him do it. Maybe, I think so, unquote. Mr. McMahon would perform oral sex on the boys in the bathroom at school, and they just never told anyone. So later, when Richard was asked if Mr. McMahon had sexually assaulted him, Richard said that he didn't remember, but he stated he did remember a disgusting pedophile who he personally witnessed inserting, and this is graphic, a candlestick into a boy's bottom as the boy screamed in pain and terror. Richard said he immediately fled and didn't see the man do that to anyone else. So, due to their own disabilities, on top of the molestation, Reuben and Robert were constantly in trouble. Julian, as angry as he would get, would never abandon his boys and would have to try to come up with the money to pay for lawyers. Julian tried to get his sons to talk with him about what was going on in an attempt to get to the root of the problem, but the boys just wouldn't talk. Julian began to believe his nephew Miguel was also a bad influence, being that he was now a young man who was constantly in fistfights and he beat people mercilessly. But thankfully, in 1965, Miguel joined the army and was shipped to Vietnam. As a kid, 
Richard loved scary movies and watched them on TV all the time. But they also gave him nightmares. He would swear that he would see monsters outside of his bedroom window, likely from the epilepsy. He had been embarrassed about having seizures at school, so he began acting out in silly ways and effectively became the class clown. So even at eight years old, he was impressively tall, with enviable, thick black hair and dark eyes with a sweet smile, but he was also very, very shy. The next year, Richard and Ruth were the only two children that were still living at home. Reuben had dropped out and moved to Los Angeles. Robert, too, dropped out and shared an apartment with Joseph, who did manage to graduate high school, but Robert eventually moved away to Arizona. However, Richard realized he had been left alone with his mean father. His three big protective brothers were gone. Julian, at this point, was bitter and jaded from feeling like a failure as a father. Though Richard wanted to make his father happy, he felt like he could never possibly live up to his expectations. But, on the other hand, Julian and Mercedes were actually quite proud of Richard because he was pretty well behaved and he was pretty successful at school as well. That would all change once he entered middle school. Richard had won the coveted role of starting quarterback on the Lincoln School's football team. He was an impressive player, fast runner, quick thinker. Unfortunately, at the end of a game, he fell to the ground and had a grand mal seizure. Without hesitation, his coach just kicked him off the team completely. Richard was devastated. He did try to argue his case, but the coach was not hearing it. So around this time, Richard's cousin Miguel, whom everyone called Mike, returned from Vietnam. He had done two tours and had won four medals. He had been an aggressive and lethal soldier, much to the delight of the military. Mike had learned that the Vietnamese believed that they wouldn't be able to get into heaven if they lost any part of their body. So he, among many other soldiers, began to cut off parts of the people's bodies. I mean, there's pictures that we've all seen of the soldiers wearing necklaces that, that have several ears on them. Many of these soldiers also raped the Vietnamese women, and Mike was particularly fond of doing this. So, when Mike returned home, the now 12-year-old Richard was there and began hanging out with his cousin, thinking him, you know, a national hero. Mike began showing Richard Polaroids that he had taken while at war. And warning, this is graphic. The photos included the local women being forced to perform oral sex on the soldiers with a gun pointed at their temple. Mike even showed Richard a photo of him holding the head of a decapitated woman. The photos showed the real gruesomeness of that war and Richard developed a fascination with the stories and the pictures that Mike shared with him. Now Richard had already seen the pornography that his much older brothers had had stashed in their rooms, but it was these Polaroids from Vietnam that stimulated him most. He rode around with his cousin smoking weed and Due to the tension in his house, Richard also had a tendency to sleep in cemeteries. He found them peaceful. 
Mike also taught Richard how to fight, how to flee, to vanish, and how to kill. Mike was married to a woman named Jessie, and together they had two sons. Jessie was not happy in the marriage and let Mike know about it. She complained that he didn't have a job and he didn't want to work and that all he was interested in was working out, reliving memories of Vietnam that he really needed to get over, and driving around smoking pot with Richard. One time when Richard was at their house, Jesse began to really lay into Mike, demanding that he go get a job, to stop smoking weed and stop hanging out with the young teenager. Mike calmly got up, he walked over to the fridge, he picked up a gun he had stashed on top of it and pointed it at Jesse, who then dared him to shoot her. So, he did just that. Mike shot her at point-blank range in the face. She fell to the floor, dead. Richard was horrified, but sort of stunned in place, and Mike instructed him to leave and not tell anyone what he had seen. And Richard kept his promise even as he later listened to his father tell his mother about the murder and Mike being arrested. Julian took Richard with him to Mike's apartment a few days later to get some items that Mike had asked them to. Richard later described entering the scene as a, quote, mystical experience that made his whole body tingle. After this experience, Richard lost all interest in school. Julian began to see the pattern evolving in Richard that he had already witnessed with his other sons, and he knew he was powerless to stop it. The next month, being out of school for the summer, Richard was permitted to go to Los Angeles to visit his brother Reuben. Now, Reuben by now was a serious heroin addict, but he was also a father. Reuben took Richard out to see the sights, but also had Richard help him commit petty crimes to help fund Reuben's heroin addiction, a thorough education that Richard would put to good use later. When Richard returned to El Paso, going back to school was just not an option and he dropped out. He began breaking into homes for the money, of course, but mostly because he got off on being in someone else's house without them knowing. He went hunting and he killed coyotes as well as other animals with a rifle that his cousin Mike had taught him how to use. He would then mutilate the animal and feed the innards to his dog. Also, even though Richard had been raised as a Catholic, devoutly Catholic, having gone to Mass nearly all of his life, he pulled away from his childhood religion and began to study Satanism. His thoughts grew more violent and his sexual fantasies were imagining those Polaroids that Mike had shown him. He also fantasized about tying women up and raping them. Once his sister Ruth got married and moved out of the childhood home, Richard left with her. Ruth's new husband was a peeping Tom, which Ruth found out quick enough, and would often take Richard out with him. He also expanded his drug use from just weed to LSD and peyote, often walking out into the desert to enjoy his trip. When Richard was 16 years old, he got a job at a local motel where a disgruntled employee gave him a master key to get into any room. 
And while he had been peering through the windows at the guests, he now decided he would sneak into the rooms while the guests slept and steal anything of value while not being detected. So one night, Richard watched as a woman began to undress in one of the motel rooms. Once she entered the bathroom, Richard let himself in. He changed course and grabbed her and tried to rape her. Her husband returned to the room to see them wrestling on the floor and he beat Richard mercilessly. He was arrested, but taken to the hospital where he received more stitches. Unfortunately, the couple were from out of state and they left the area before they could press official charges and the case against Richard was dropped. When Richard was 17, he had developed an intense, deviant, sexual world within his mind. He began to use prostitutes regularly. He was also regularly stealing and engaging in petty robberies and it did not take long for the police to place him in a Texas youth camp for juvenile delinquents, though he was not there long. Also around this time, his cousin Mike, who had been placed in a mental facility, was released from the Texas State Mental Hospital and the two started hanging out together again. But finally, in 1978, Richard Ramirez boarded a Greyhound bus headed to Los Angeles, California, where he decided to plant his roots. So, that was Richard's childhood. We are fortunate enough that this was so well documented, we have the luxury of getting nearly the entire picture for analysis. So let's begin. It would be very difficult to try to pin some of the behavioral issues with the Ramirez children on possible exposure to nuclear fallout from testing done in New Mexico. But it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility since the site was only about 200 miles north of El Paso. We also would have a hard time speculating whether or not the chemicals that Richard's mother, Mercedes, was exposed to in the boot factory had any effect on both Ruth and Richard's fetal development. There is no documentation that says Ruth suffered with anything whatsoever from birth or in her childhood and Richard was much the same. By all accounts, including his own mother's words, Richard was born a very happy and healthy baby. So, we will start with the incident of the dresser landing on him at two years old, knocking him unconscious for a time and the wound on his head that required 30 stitches. The wound was said to have been on his forehead. So behind the forehead is of course the frontal lobe, which is in charge of how we express emotions, solve complex problems, our cognitive skills, judgment and memory, as well as language and sexual behaviors. And since he was only two years old at the time of the accident, there is no record of his behavior or personality changing. It is again difficult to say for sure that this head injury changed his personality and none of his family noted any real behavioral changes just after this first incident. But then three years later, at five years old, he was yet again knocked unconscious by a swing on the playground and he had to have more stitches in his head. The head injury must have been substantial because after 
He was diagnosed with epilepsy after he began having grand mal seizures. So what's a grand mal seizure? According to the Mayo Clinic, for those who might not know, they happen when the electrical activity over the entire surface of the brain gets, well, out of sync. The nerve cells all of a sudden begin firing at the same time. The person will lose consciousness and often have violent muscle contractions. People who have reoccurring seizures will need to be on anti-seizure medication for control and prevention. Now there are also two phases to grand mal seizures. There's tonic and clonic. Tonic is the loss of consciousness and muscle contraction. The person will kind of go stiff and fall down. This phase lasts about 10 to 20 seconds. The clonic phase is where the muscles begin to violently release and contract, release and contract. It's exactly what you're envisioning in your head right now. This lasts usually one to two full minutes. While someone is having one of these, they may scream, it's involuntary, they may lose control of their bladder or bowel, they may not become conscious for a bit after the convulsions have stopped, and when they do regain consciousness, they will most often be confused, feel overwhelmingly tired, and have a terrible headache. Now, people that suffer with these types of seizures are at risk for a few common things, but one in particular is having psychological issues such as depression and anxiety. So when Richard began having these, his mother rushed him to the hospital where they verified he had epilepsy, but from my research of multiple sources, there was no offer of medication to help Richard, which I find odd. There were a few really effective medications out during this time in his life that would have controlled that. So then we look at the family dynamic. Richard watched as his considerably older brothers began a downward spiral of abusing drugs and becoming petty thieves. According to Science Daily, older siblings strongly sway the younger siblings that if older siblings commit criminal acts, the risk of the younger sibling falling into those same behaviors notably increases. Also, children who watch their parents behave violently are much more likely to act out violently themselves. In an article by Live Science, parents who express negative emotions toward their children or handle them roughly, this is what we would call negative parenting, results in aggressive defiant children who grow up and can become aggressive and defiant adults. In short, Parents' use of harsh physical punishment increases violent behavior in youths. We already know that Julian, who we know actually did love his kids and wanted to be a good father, unfortunately used physical beatings to try to control his children. He used the discipline techniques taught to him by his own father, and Richard vividly remembered having to listen to his brothers get beat. And though we aren't sure whether or not Richard was molested by the teacher, his brother did indicate that he thought he might have been. And childhood sexual abuse is correlated with much higher levels of depression, guilt, shame, self-blame, eating disorders, somatic concerns, anxiety, 
dissociative patterns, repression, denial, as well as sexual and relationship problems. And as Richard got older, his brothers began to move out of the family home, leaving Richard to feel a bit abandoned, as his brothers did their best to shield him from their own father. So, he began hanging out with his much older cousin, who was recently home from Vietnam. And what his cousin Mike exposed him to had a profound effect on Richard's psyche. Richard was the starting quarterback of his team at school and doing pretty well in school as he came into his teens. Having one of his seizures at a game made the coach kick him off the team immediately. And again, I don't understand why he wasn't given medication for this that would have controlled the seizures, but regardless, this was a huge blow to Richard. His brothers were gone, his father still doled out the wrath, he had epilepsy, and now his cousin Mike was back from Vietnam. Mike filled the empty space his brothers had left when they moved away, and while his brothers weren't the best influences, they were saints compared to Mike. I mean, right around the time that Richard was going through puberty and his sexual drive was, you know, quote, waking up, if you will, his cousin showed him horribly graphic photos of Vietnamese women being forced to perform sexual acts on the men, being raped and murdered. But at the same time, Mike had come back a hero. I mean, to a young and impressionable mind, that would be hard to compartmentalize. Here's my cousin, and he's a war hero and a rapist and a murderer. I mean, you could see how this would affect Richard. Mike then introduced him to psychedelic drugs. He taught him how to effectively be in stealth mode, how to fight, how to kill, then proceeded to violently murder his own wife in front of Richard and then ordered him to never tell. So we know that kids and teens that witness this level of violence are much more likely to abuse alcohol and drugs, have depression, anxiety, PTSD, display aggressive and violent behavior, and engage in criminal activity. And then, of course, there is him being taught to be a peeping Tom by his sister's new husband. So in summation, anything he might have been exposed to prior to his actual birth aside... The two significant head injuries, the grand mal seizures, the drugs and violence and sexual perversions that he was exposed to are a very potent cocktail that made him into the serial killer that he later became. So in 1978, Richard decided to move to Los Angeles and leave El Paso, Texas behind. As he traveled, he began thinking more and more on the Christian devil and how the way he thought about things were more in line with the Satanism religion. He had also devised a plan to be able to support himself, so he bought a bunch of marijuana in El Paso because it was cheap and readily available, and then he took it to Los Angeles and he was going to sell it for a lot more money. Once Richard landed in downtown L.A., he knew this was the devil's playground. He looked around and saw wore-out prostitutes, crackheads, and heroin addicts, filth and decay everywhere. To him, he felt like he was finally amongst his people. 
He used the profits of selling his marijuana to stay in hotels, but he occasionally stayed with his brother Reuben and his wife, though that didn't last long. Reuben accused Richard of flirting with his wife, so Richard just left. Richard also began dabbling in cocaine and developed a healthy addiction. So to support his habit, he did what he had been trained to do by his own family. He robbed people's homes, and he was good at it. He was making more money than he ever had, which fueled his dark fantasies more and more. Soon, cocaine turned into PCP. So one evening, he and a girl were both using, and when they finished, he began to make moves towards her, but she asked him to leave. So, he simply climbed to the roof and waited until he knew she was asleep. He let himself back in, he tied her down, gagged her, and raped her. And this was it. Fantasy became reality. He soon bought and read the Satanic Bible, then wanting to meet the author Anton LaVey, which he actually did meet. The Satanic Bible, in a nutshell, states that we should be living in a world without sin or guilt. Richard went to a Church of Satan ritual and watched a ceremony being performed with a naked woman. He later said he felt the ice-cold hand of Satan touch his very core. So after stealing a car and getting arrested, he met another Satanist in jail, and by the time Richard was released, he was a, quote, lone practitioner of the religion. He drew pentagrams on his skin, and he was very open about his new beliefs. So his mother was beginning to get very concerned because he wasn't checking in often, and she sent his sister Ruth to Los Angeles to beg him to come home. And when Ruth finally found her baby brother, she barely recognized him. He was entirely too thin, gaunt, and the light in his eyes was gone. She pleaded with him while he was sitting there shooting up cocaine right in front of her. But Ruth knew her brother wasn't coming home, and she left defeated. In June of 1984, Richard was driving around L.A. at night, dressed head to toe in black and wearing a baseball hat, pulled down far on his face. He was on the hunt for cocaine. He had spent the last of his money on the drug, shooting up, and then he decided he would have to break into a house or two to get more money. He settled on the apartment of 79-year-old Jenny Vinco. He broke in through a window, but couldn't quite get a grip on the screen, so he took one of his gloves off to help him get a good grip. Once inside, he could see that she really had nothing of real value, and he got angry. He got his knife, keep in mind he's hopped up on cocaine, he crept into the sleeping woman's room and he began stabbing her. He slit her throat nearly to the point of decapitation. And once she was dead, he felt excited and powerful. By the time he left, he had been in there several hours savoring his kill. The police later found his fingerprints on the screen, but this was the early 80s. His record was in Texas, not California. He continued to steal and rob places to get money to support himself and his ever-growing drug addiction, but 
Now that he had murdered and the lust for the act was increasing, he forced himself to stop using cocaine. He wanted to be clear-headed as he began to kill. And as a side note, Richard was also beginning to let himself go, often not showering or brushing his teeth for long periods of time, and with the addition of the drug use led to rapid tooth decay. In March of 1985, less than a year after his first murder, he attacked 22-year-old Maria Hernandez outside of her house as she was pulling her car into her garage. Richard attempted to shoot her in the face, and she only survived due to her putting her hands up to protect herself, and the bullet miraculously ricocheted off the keys that she held in her hand. Her roommate, however, was not so lucky. Dale Okazaki heard the gunshot from inside the house and ducked down behind the kitchen counter as Richard entered the residence. She tried to quietly peek over the counter to see if he was still in the room, and then he shot her in the head. Later that night, Richard approached Veronica Yu's car in Monterey Park. He shot her twice and ran. With three attacks, two resulting in death, in one night definitely caught the media's attention. The police were given a description of Richard, stating he had dark curly hair, bulging eyes, and wide-spaced, rotting teeth. Ten days later, on March 27, 1985, 25-year-old Richard broke into a home that he had robbed before. He shot Vincent Zazera in the head. The shot woke Vincent's wife, Maxine, up, and Richard began to beat her. He tied her up and began looking around for valuables. And while he was distracted, Maxine was able to actually loosen up her bindings and free herself. And she reached for a gun under her bed that was unfortunately not loaded. Richard was livid and he shot her three times. He then went into the kitchen, got a large knife and began to mutilate her body taking her eyes with him in a jewelry box. But he did leave behind shoe prints in a flower bed. Police later determined that the bullets used in this murder matched the ones from the previous murders. They now knew they were dealing with a serial killer. Not quite two months later, Richard broke into the home of 83-year-old Mabel Bell and her sister, 81-year-old Nettie Lang. In the kitchen, he found a hammer. He then tied up and beat Nettie mercilessly. He then bound Mabel and used an electrical cord to try to electrocute her. Richard then went back and raped Nettie, then used lipstick to draw a pentagram on her leg. And yes, you can find a picture of that on Google if you so wish to look. He also drew on the walls of both of their bedrooms, and then he left. At first, the two women survived, but Mabel later died from her injuries. The next day, Richard broke into 42-year-old Carol Kyle's home, and while pointing a gun at her, he tied her up and also handcuffed her 11-year-old son. He then began looking for valuables in the house. He decided to untie Carol so that she could show him where to find the things he wanted. 
He then began to molest her, but told her not to look at him and if she did he would cut her eyes out. On July 2nd, he drove a stolen car and chose to break into the house of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon. She was asleep. Richard grabbed a lamp, beat her until she was unconscious, then stabbed her with a 10-inch knife over and over and killed her. Three nights later, he broke into another house, beating 16-year-old Whitney Bennett with a tire iron in her head. He then tried strangling her with a telephone cord, but it began to spark and Whitney was beginning to breathe again. Fearing that Jesus Christ himself was saving this girl, Richard ran from the house terrified, and Whitney survived. Two nights later, Richard broke into the home of 61-year-old Joyce Nelson, who was asleep on her couch. He beat her and kicked her in the head so severely that it killed her. He kicked her so hard, in fact, that it left his shoe imprint on her face and the police matched that shoe print from the other murder scene. That same night, he broke into the home of 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. Richard handcuffed the woman, tried to rape her but was unsuccessful, then stole whatever he could find of value. When she swore that that was all she had, he demanded that she, quote, swear to Satan, but this time he left his victim alive. On July 20th, after buying a machete, he broke into the home of 68-year-old Maxon and 66-year-old Leela Needing. He boldly walked into their bedroom and began hacking at both of them with his machete, then shot each of them in the head while continuing to mutilate them. He robbed their house and he left. A few hours later, he broke into the home of the Covenant family. He shot and killed the dad instantly. He then beat and raped the mom repeatedly. He tied up their young son and forced the mom to show him where all of their valuables were. He again made his victim, quote, swear to Satan that she was not hiding anything, but he did allow her and her son to live. On August 6th, Richard broke into the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson, both in their late 20s. He shot Virginia in the face first, then Chris in the temple, only that shot didn't kill Chris. He fought tooth and nail for his life until Richard gave up and ran, and miraculously, both victims did survive. Two days later, he entered the home of 31-year-old Elias and 27-year-old Sakina Abawath and went into their bedroom. He shot Elias in the head, killing him instantly. He then handcuffed Sakina and demanded she tell him where their valuables were. He then violently raped her and demanded she swear to Satan that she would not scream. She and the couple's three-year-old son survived. Now, of course, you know that he was all over the news. A composite sketch was released that resembled Richard moderately at best. He had been watching the coverage and decided to take a trip north to San Francisco. While there, he broke into the home of elderly couple Peter and Barbara Pan. He shot Peter in the head while he was sleeping. Then he beat and sexually assaulted Barbara before shooting her in the head. 
He then took lipstick he found and wrote, quote, Jack the Knife on the wall. It did not take long for the authorities to match the bullets and the shoe prints at the pan home to those from the Los Angeles crime scenes. The mayor of San Francisco leaked withheld information to the press, much to the irritation of the authorities who guessed exactly what Richard did. He got rid of his shoes that very night, dumping them over the Golden Gate Bridge and simply heading back to Los Angeles. On August 24, 1985, after arriving back in Los Angeles, he went to the Romero home intending to break in. But fortunately for them, their 13-year-old son heard Richard's footsteps outside and he ran to get his parents up. Seeing the lights come on, Richard ran away, but not before the family got the make, model, and color, as well as the license plate of the car Richard was driving. That same night, Richard broke into the home of 30-year-old Bill Carnes and his fiancée, 29-year-old Inez Erickson. He shot Bill three times in the head, then told Inez that he was, quote, the Night Stalker, and began beating her while making her swear that she loved Satan. He gathered up valuables, drug, and tied up Inez into the next room and raped her. Then before leaving, he said to her, quote, Tell them the Night Stalker was here. Miraculously, Bill survived. Inez gave the police a very detailed description of Richard, and four days later, the car that he had been driving was found, and they were able to get a fingerprint from the rearview mirror. You see, Richard had wiped the car, but didn't think about a fingerprint behind the mirror. So this time, the prints were identified as being Richard's, the authorities released his mugshot to the media, which prompted a small-time criminal who also lived in downtown L.A. named Jesse Perez to take notice. He knew Richard as Rick, and he began to realize that Rick could very well be the Night Stalker. He had his daughter call the police, and after being assured that he would not be arrested himself for his outstanding crimes, he spoke with the police. He described Richard as a drifter from Texas who was pretty well known around that bus station. Jesse told them that Rick had a 22 caliber automatic, which was a match to the gun used at the murders. After interviewing others who hung around the bus station, they heard more and more stories of this Rick person, and they knew that it was a match. The police made a statement to the media, quote, We know who you are now, and soon everyone else will. There will be no place you can hide, unquote. Now, while all this was going on, Richard had decided to go visit his brother, Robert, in Arizona. He boarded a bus and arrived in Tucson sometime later. He called his brother's house, but knew right away he would not be welcome. As he hung around the bus station trying to decide what to do, he failed to realize that there were plainclothes police officers lingering everywhere. He decided to buy a ticket and head back to L.A. Once he got back, he immediately recognized that the bus station was crawling with police. He did manage to slip away undiscovered and went to get some breakfast. And as he ate, 
he noticed some elderly Mexican women staring at him, terrified from the back of the store, calling him El Matador, or the killer. He looked around the room and saw a newspaper with his mugshot slapped right on the front page. As he began to flee from the store, the owner called the police and the cops came from all directions, including a helicopter. Richard took shortcuts through people's yards, dropping his bag along the way, and he hopped into a bus, and yet, people on the bus recognized him but were too terrified to move. So he jumped off that bus, and he began to run again, and now citizens were yelling and chasing him. He tried to steal a couple of cars, but he didn't have time and he'd have to run again. One person chasing him was holding a large iron bar. He hit Richard in the head and knocked him to the ground. Then men all dropped and held him down. Richard was officially caught on August 31st, 1985. Richard Ramirez was arrested and during his trial, he flashed his palm where he had drawn a pentagram and three sixes. He once shouted, Hail Satan, in the courtroom. The court proceedings were eerie and tense. However, Richard began to see that women were coming in in droves to get a good look at him during his trials. He began to flirt with the audience, and his grandiose and glib personality shone bright like a star. He, in fact, felt like a rock star. But four years after his arrest, he was finally found guilty of 13 murders, 5 attempted murders, 14 burglaries, and 11 sexual assaults and was sentenced to the gas chamber to which he replied, quote, big deal, death always went with the territory. He then exclaimed, quote, see you in Disneyland. Richard Ramirez's trial was the most expensive for the city until the O.J. Simpson trial. Now, of course, he appealed and appealed, but he ultimately died from B-cell lymphoma at 53 years old. He had also been suffering from hepatitis C. He had been on death row for 23 years. So that's Richard's entire life story. So let's see if there might be some possible mental disorders that Richard could have had. According to the Diagnosis and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, conduct disorder is a, quote, repetitive and persistent pattern of behavior in which the basic rights of others or major age-appropriate societal norms or rules are violated. There is a list of 15 criteria in order to be considered to have conduct disorder. A person must show at least three to be considered. Here are those 15 criteria. Bullies, threatens, or intimidates others. Initiates physical fights. Uses a weapon that can cause serious harm to others. Has been physically cruel to people has been physically cruel to animals, has stolen while confronting their victim, forces someone into sexual activity, deliberately sets fires to cause serious damage, destroys people's property other than with fire, broken into someone else's house or car, 
lies often to get favors or avoid obligations, has stolen items of value without confronting their victim, staying out at night despite parental rules, running away from home frequently, or is often missing school. And guess what, guys? Out of these 15, Richard Ramirez displayed 10 of them. So I think it's pretty safe to say that he had conduct disorder. But he also scored very high on the psychopathy assessment. So, where does Richard fall? He falls under what experts call the, quote, trauma control model. This model says that a combination of factors led to him being a serial killer. It was the combination of biological, sociological, and psychological factors, the head traumas that also caused his seizures, and proximity to people who abused drugs and displayed criminal behaviors that caused him to be the way he was. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram at serial underscore killing or YouTube under the same name of this podcast. You can also visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com and also consider sponsoring this podcast. It takes a lot of hours and a lot of work to gather this info, although I do love it. I also have merch available till towards the end of June. The link to that merchandise is on the website serialkilling.squarespace.com. So thank you so very much for listening. I appreciate each one of you as I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. Have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on incompetech.com.